Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, the founder and president of LCI, and with me today to discuss yet again a chapter of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions, is Dick Clark, one of our co-authors of the book. Dick, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me aboard. Awesome. Well, as many of you know, Dick and I have been buddies for about 15 years, and, uh, and so that's part of the reason why, after spending so much time talking about liberty with this fine fella, we brought him on to co-author this book with us. And Now, if you're unaware, Dick is an attorney in the state of Nebraska and is just a really, really smart guy that, again, I've known for a long time. And so today we are here to talk about Chapter 12. This is the chapter about environment and creation. We're going to be talking about pollution today. And so, Dick, uh, perhaps a good way to start talking about this is really just to mention up front that, you know, in the state of nature that we have, we have to work hard in order to bend it to our will in order to survive. That's a given, right? Well, ever since, uh, you know, the ground was cursed after uh, Eden, uh, you know, that it's uh, sweat of the brow that it takes to bring forth the uh, increase from the earth, right? And that's just the state that we live in. You know, poverty is the natural condition. Prosperity is the aberration. And then as a result of, of this mandate that we're given, in fact, to go and, you know, to subdue the earth in a good way, we also realize, though, that that requires, you know, cultivation. And in fact, this even if we take the, the Garden of Eden as even part metaphor as well, which is that a garden requires this kind of care and cultivation and work in order to make it happen. So on some level, we are to readily admit from the outset that if we move about this world and just destroy it wantonly, then we're doing something that is profoundly anti-Christian in many respects, right? I think that's right. Uh, I think that, you know, waste is an ungrateful act, right? Squandering something that you've received as, a, as an inheritance shows you don't value it very much, right? Yeah. And, and in consequence that maybe you don't think much of the, the gift giver. Yeah, and so I, I want to be really, really clear about this. I think there's, you know, there's some almost technical terminology one could bring to bear into some of this because, you know, waste, waste is, is a bit of a tricky word, but squandering, profligacy, destruction. Those are things that we are distinctly to avoid. Inevitably, there is inefficiency in the world of production. That's a given because of just, well, the laws of thermodynamics are against us here, right? The first law itself is that, you know, you can't just create energy out of thin air. And in fact, whenever you're transferring it into different forms, and which in part means whenever you're moving matter into different configurations, there is going to be inefficiency and a loss of energy and and a loss of, and that could be considered waste on some level. But I do want us to be cognizant that what we're describing here is not just the concept of, well, being inefficient is immoral or something, but rather the notion that when we're being profligate with what is around us, that's where I think there, there begins to be a problem. 
Now, if indeed then we are to be industrious in our use of the earth and we are to use it and cultivate it in order to sustain our lives and to create prosperity around us, you know, that's an inherently good thing. And so the creation of CO2, for instance, is not something that is immoral, but something that is in fact a good thing. (laughs) But here's the kind of funny thing about it. When we start talking about pollution and the desecration of the earth and, and destruction and whatnot, and we begin to operate under the assumption that the only way that we're going to fix problems that are associated with pollution and whatnot is to appeal to a government, a state, a group that monopolizes violence, I think we end up with some really contradictory or or, uh, some conclusions that end up running rather counter to our desires in the first place if we take what we've said prior as being the kind of fundamental premises of our operations. Yeah, and the fact is that the more we understand what's mine and what's somebody else's, the better we can respect the rights of others. And by the way, the better we can avoid the sorts of what we'd probably characterize as misuse, right? Or a misallocation of these wonderful natural resources that God has blessed us with. And the fact is that governments do a really poor job at managing those scarce resources. And so the fact is some people will make bad decisions. Some people will intentionally be good stewards. Others are going to be, you know, uh, spendthrifts, right? And are, are going to be like the the prodigal son who uses up all of the intergenerational capital that he's inherited and is just trying to get hired as, uh, you know, wage laborer rather than having to just be totally, you know, destitute. And, you know, that's the consequence of wasting capital and, and misallocating, misappropriating resources. And it's markets and it's private ownership that encourage good stewardship, right? And exactly. the fact is, we're all familiar with this idea of a tragedy of the commons. If I'm in an office building and we have a common break room and we're not, you know, all paying a monthly fee for cleanup, we, you know, we just have to clean it up as we come. Well, well, guess what? You know, the, we're only really going to have the incentive to be as neat as the messiest guy, right? Uh, and the fact is that it's, it's a dangerous thing when nobody knows who's accountable, right? It's, that's when you're likely to see wasted resources and, you know, things go wrong. And indeed, we do see that where government massively manages the landscape. And obviously, looking at, you know, the uh, Soviet Republic, right, the USSR, mm-hmm. and we see the, just the incredible pollution that occurred there. And then, you know, we see even uh, scarier things like, uh, you know, the what was it, the four pests campaign in in China where they uh, ended up trying to wipe out, among other things, all of the sparrows, right? And this ended up causing this massive famine and millions and millions of people died. And and again, that's that's a consequence of actually what the central planner thought was going to be a beneficial activity. But again, way too little information to understand the consequence, magnified by it being the policy throughout the nation of China, and you had a lot of human death and a lot of misery that resulted even from what probably ought to be characterized as, as well-meaning or well-intended conduct. And, you know, the problem is central planners, you know, think of a forest fire, right? If, if every little 
parcel is, is managed independently by owners, well, you might have a few irresponsible owners here and there, but it's just going to be a few patches out of the quilt, right? And most of it, you'd think people are going to preserve their their valuable resources that they own. But when we see government manage it all, you know, one big chunk, that's where you have the huge, you know, fires that burn tens of thousands of square miles and all this stuff, because it's just this, you know, monolithic approach to managing things. And so, you know, you aim big and you miss big, and there's just these dire consequences for all of society because we're all on that ship that's just tipped over, right? And so that's uh, that's the scary part of central planning because, you know, if we just have property owners who are held to account for their own consequences of their conduct, but those consequences really don't reach much further than their stuff, well, that's where people know the most, and it's also where others are harmed the least. And that's why, as libertarians, just on a, on a moral level, we, we say, look, this, this central planning thing, it's not just an efficiency problem. It's about people not having their lives ruined by others imposing a bad plan on them, right? It's not just about the injustice. It's also about the fact that, you know, central planning and the command economy happens to be not very good at satisfying the, the wants of human beings compared to what they could do in the market. And in addition to, as you're kind of alluded to, the more that these states get involved, the more we find that, well, they're actually some of the worst polluters out there. And it's because of that kind of tragedy of the commons problem. Well, and I think we mentioned in the book that, you know, the U.S. military is yep. one of the largest, if not the largest, institutional consumer of hydrocarbons and therefore producer of CO2 in the atmosphere than any other, you know, institution in the world. In fact, if the U.S. military was its own country, it would produce more atmospheric CO2 than all but 46 member nations of the UN, right? And so that's just, <laughs> that's just one bureaucratic institution, a very large one, but one within the United States federal government. And, it, you know, there's lots more. And, of course, there's all sorts of wasteful decision-making that comes from politics being at the base of a decision rather than, you know, market incentives. And, you know, there's wonderful uh, reading that we can do, I think, by uh, what Thomas DiLorenzo wrote about the second transcontinental railroad and the, the fact that it was, its route was determined really by strictly market considerations, whereas the first transcontinental railroad was sort of a monument to graft, right? And you'd, you'd build so many miles out of the way you know, under some pretense because some landowner that was going to be enriched by being on the route paid you to, right? Uh, or promised you some benefit for doing that. And so as a result, very little of the first transcontinental route, or a, a lot less of it anyway, is in operation than the second one where, where the market really plotted the course. And, you know, just think of how much wasted effort and, and wasted resources went into building a route to the proverbial bridge to nowhere, Right. And that's what governments do because that's the way that bureaucrats are incentivized. And, you know, you can talk to a, you know, a military guy and probably hear a story about how he knows some guys who got detailed at the end of the calendar year to go burn off the extra ammo at the shooting range because they didn't want to get, you know, allocated less ammo in the next year. And so they had to go make sure they used up everything they got. For, and that's just, you know, it's like, you know, throwing gold over the side of the ship into the bottom of the ocean, right? You're just destroying wealth at that point. But it's because of the perverse incentives that are presented to bureaucrats by the institutions that they inhabit. And of course, you know, Mises wrote his uh, short book, Bureaucracy, 
on this problem, the problem of the, the perverse incentives that bureaucracies present as compared to the really the, the beneficial incentives that markets put in front of people. Yeah, and, and you brought up, you know, just carbon production. And we've alluded to this multiple times already. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just brings up this question of what about climate change? How does something like the climate, which is presumably something that is global in nature, it affects everybody. Well, how is that something that can be affected if that's indeed happening through markets? Is there something that can happen there that makes that, that can be improved there? Well, the fact is that a lot of people are paying attention to this issue and a lot of them have very strong beliefs on it. And a lot of them are willing to spend money to address the problem. And so that's typically most of the ingredients that we would want to see to predict that, hey, there's going to be some market-generated solution. And so, you know, we've seen some things, you know, like uh, carbon trade-offs and so on, or, or even right now here in Nebraska, for example, they're developing, uh, you know, these injection wells to inject CO2 that's been captured, you know, into the ground so that it doesn't end up in the atmosphere. And so, you know, there it happens that there is a whole lot of interest in doing that because a lot of the big companies that are thinking about planning a data center here or, you know, a call center there want that sort of thing. Uh, and that they'll negotiate for those sorts of things being available as part of an economic development package. Now, that's in the world of mixed economy and government trying to pick winners and losers in the marketplace. But the fact is there's pretty big actors in the private sector that throw their weight around to get these concessions when they're going to move into some local area that, hey, we want so much percentage of our you know power capacity to be produced by what we characterize as renewable sources or, right. you know, things along those lines. So, you know, where there's a demand for it, there's going to be people trying to satisfy that demand. Now, you mentioned the sort of global problem and how we can try to address that. And I think that's fair. But, you know, let's think about the local problem too, right? Because the, you know, the the real obvious, everybody agrees on it, sort of pollution that's problematic is where, you know, I poison my neighbor's well and his cattle die or, you know, uh, his kids get cancer or, you know, somehow I've diminished the usefulness of his land. And there we can much more readily dissect the problem, analyze the problem in terms of just property rights. Yeah. And Rothbard, of course, wrote a wonderful essay on law, property rights and air pollution that I would point people toward for a, a sort of framework for analyzing these sorts of problems. But it's really just a problem of trespass. You know, and if I fire a bunch of bullets from my back porch and they all land on my neighbor's, uh, you know, kitchen counter, it's pretty <laughs> clear that I've committed a trespass. Now, that's a little more dramatic than if I just, you know, run some smokestacks that push, you know, nasty uh, so you know, pollutants over on yeah. his property and soot and so on and discolors his barn. And, you know, the, the kids get sick and one of them's got the crazy eye because of it and all that. <laughs> like that That's a, a little more subtle, but I mean, it's... But it's I think still a trespass. Things, yeah, it's a trespass. And we understand how those sorts of things can be actionable. And frankly, we're better situated now than ever in history to trace the sources of those sorts of chemical trespass, if you will. And I think that that's what markets would do an even better job of if we let them, right? It yeah. is hold people to account 
for their decisions that violate the rights of others. And by the way, that's that's a lot more rigorous standard than the pie in the sky. Hey, let's just reduce emissions by 30%. You know, what, what's the optimal parts per million yeah. of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, says some guy, right? I mean, that's, yep. that's a much harder thing to answer with any rigor. But those local problems, we're getting better at solving all the time. And of course, just to be explicit, Libertarians believe in property rights, therefore we believe that it's wrong to poison your neighbor's cattle or your neighbor's kids or to, you know, do other things. That or just dump, trespass. Yeah, or just, you know, dump waste into your stream that goes downstream and hits somebody else badly. Yeah, and, and we I mean, can all even... All that stuff is wrong. And we can even think about it in terms of something where I am, I'm physically affecting his property without landing particles on it. And, you know, that might be, you know, I'm in a residential neighborhood and now all of a sudden you know, I am testing artillery shells in, the, in a residential neighborhood <laughs> and I'm causing such a decibel level that it that it's harmful to the hearing of bystanders. I mean, again, these are the sorts of things where even though there's not certain number of particles per million that are landing, you know, out of the air onto my, uh, you know, onto the hood of my Jeep or something, we can still measure it and account for it and identify its source and identify how to sort of take action against that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, having good fences makes good neighbors, right, as the aphorism goes. And having rigorous property rights where people have a very clear expectation for what is mine, what's his, you know, that's what makes for peace between neighbors is the fact that there's not ambiguity. And again, it sort of goes back to the same idea as the tragedy of the commons, right? It's just the more uncertainty there is about who holds the bag, who's responsible, the more room there is for people to get up to shenanigans and kind of excuse it in their own mind, rationalize it in their own yep. mind. Yeah. And it's amazing how just, you know, having proper views of private property and how that works itself out in the resolution of disputes applies itself almost immediately into this situation of, well, what happens when pollution becomes an issue? What happens when, you know, you trespass onto somebody else's property in a certain way? Well, there's ways that we can actionably work into that. I'll note one other thing too, which going back to kind of, just kind of circling around our going global again. And one thing that, that does, <laughs> I would say, does not inspire confidence that the state really cares all that much about pollution in, in many respects is the way in which they will block energy saving and wonderful technologies that would improve power production and whatnot from coming into reality. The chiefest of examples of this is nuclear power, mm -hmm. where, you know, without a doubt, nuclear power is the most efficient and, and actually the, the least polluting of all types of energy sources pretty much out there. I mean, yes, yes, you do have nuclear waste and whatnot, but we're actually getting even better at reusing that, reprocessing it, making it good again. And there's all sorts of amazing things that have come about technologically in the last, you know, 50 years, especially to make that technology even better. And yet the government routinely is against making new nuclear power plants. It's insane. Well, and you know, with the <laughs> advent of the small modular reactors and just oh boy, how much more we know, how much more efficient we can be. I mean, it's really shocking the opposition that you see from people who yeah. you know, sort of hold themselves out as champions for the environment because we understand and, and we have 
you know, a scary level of understanding of of what can go wrong with nuke, right? What can go wrong with, with nuclear energy? Sure. But the fact is, we really have a, a very good understanding of how much waste there's going to be, where it's going to go, how to capture it. And just in terms of the volume of waste that's being produced in relation to the, you know, the units of electricity that are being generated or whatever. It's it's just clear that this is the most efficient way to produce power. All you're producing basically is steam, yeah. right? From from most of these in terms of the the output into the environment. And then you know they uh, take away the spent fuel and go lock it in a in a hole in the ground for uh, longer than any of us will care to keep track. But you know, you find <laughs> the right geological formations and stow those away and you know, probably you do that in a state where nobody lives nearby. And, you know, if you look in the Western United States, of course, it's mostly empty space. And speaking of tragedies of the commons, you know, we have all of these Bureau of Land Management lands that are managed by the federal government. And uh, of course, we see conflict come from that, right? Like the whole dust up a few years back with the Bundys and asserting their right to graze these lands they had grazed since time immemorial, right? But the BLM claimed, oh, no, that you don't have the right to do this anymore. And, you know, uncertainty and, and commons create a breach of the peace, right? Because it, when you don't know what's rightfully yours and what's rightfully your neighbors, it's just really likely that you're going to come into conflict with your neighbor. So... Yeah, so I think that that really kind of covers a lot of the ground that we wanted to to address today with regards to, you know, what is what do we think about the environment and how that plays into libertarian ideas as well as, you know, our Christian values. So, once again, this has all been a discussion regarding our book Faith Seeking Freedom: Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And uh it's a short little book of around 120 pages of all sorts of different questions that are answered in a clear and concise way so that you can take that to your friends and your family and be a better communicator of libertarian ideas. If you are interested in learning more, we encourage you to get a copy of the book at Amazon or via our website at libertarianchristians.com. And if you have any additional questions that you want to ask us, go to libertarianchristians.com and contact us via our contact page, and we'll do our best to try and address those questions via the blog as well. So with me today has been Dick Clark. Dick, thanks once again for being here with me. Always a pleasure, Norman. And uh, with that, we'll conclude this episode and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.